Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. The BAI team of professionals are dedicated to enhancing the lives of individuals with autism, with services tailored to meet the unique needs of each individual. BAI, the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at BehaviorABA.com and 765-282-8ABA. I'm J.R. Jamison. Today on The Facing Project, we'll hear two stories from individuals who have faced eviction in different ways. The first from a man who's experienced homelessness due to job losses, and a judge who says that sometimes the landlords are right, and sometimes they're wrong. Later, I'll be joined by four experts who research and work on the front lines of eviction and housing insecurity every day. Stay with me for A Place to Call Home. Evictions are a tale as old as time, and will continue as long as there are landlords and renters. But not every eviction is equal. Some people are, in fact, unjustly evicted. And if the evicted have the right resources at their fingertips, it will play out in the legal system. Unfortunately, not everyone has the right resources, including one of the biggest resources next to money, time. Out of the 44 million renters in the U.S., 11 million of those are the working poor. On average, landlords file over 3.5 million eviction cases each year. And according to a 2022 Harvard study, households with children are more likely to be evicted than those without children, leaving nearly 15% of all children in the U.S. experiencing eviction by the time they're 15 years old. This has led to poor health and developmental risk among children, including impaired cognitive ability and more and longer hospital stays. As the study puts it, child health and housing insecurity are deeply intertwined. This past year, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Kathy Roll, a sociologist based in Dayton, Ohio, who's devoted her career to eviction and housing insecurity. And together, along with a group of writers, we put together the book Facing Eviction and Housing Insecurity. The book includes the voices of over 50 men, women, and children who have experienced or witnessed housing injustice. The stories follow the lives of adults and children in the throes of eviction and homelessness, and those who are part of the housing system, including the courts, landlords, and advocates. Today we'll hear two of those stories, and then I'll be joined by Kathy and three other eviction experts— Dr. Tim Thomas of the University of California, Berkeley, and Deborah Levy and Destiny Brown, both advocates for basic legal equality. Due to some strong language and sensitive content, listener discretion is advised. A Place to Be, an anonymous story is told to A.B. Hyatt, performed by Carl Frost. It was up to me to rescue him. Shredded paper, twisted metal from a pencil rim. The socket sure is sparking well. White smoke, blackening plastic, a chemical smell. The building burning bright, first orange, then red. The police station fades to ash. What went through my eight-year-old head? Without him, how long would I last? A kid in court on account of his uncle, facing his own counts. One boy minus one uncle, less one mother, three times the struggle. My uncle off to prison, my mother God knows where, a child thrown to the state's tender care. I'm shoved in a safe place they'd picked, while mother dearest fumbles for a grip. Better here, they'd say, than a house with her, where mom's nine personalities battle cancer. Orphanage is another term for a lockup. 
There's bars on the windows and beds in a row. My jailers act heaven sent. They're just hollow arms for the government. They keep telling me it's nice here, but no one's free to go. It's foreshadowing of 40 years fate. I'm bound to a path chosen by the state, free to suffer the consequences of the determinations they make. No time to learn to strive for myself when I'm caught in fights on my right and left. A pack of boys, no matter how neatly dressed, are ruthless as a hornet's nest. A boy must master the art of violence. When raised in a land of spite, gotta know how to throw hands when everyone is anything but all right. At night, I try to sleep under the bed, eyes smashed shut, ears stretched wide for the telltale echoes of footfalls from which I hide. His violation leaves me unstable, out of sorts. Suddenly, I'm tossed from the orphanage back to mom, more hearings in the courts, only to land with my militaristic ex-stepdad. Silence after pistol whippings, the only peace I have. Drill sergeant says, I'm out of order. By 13, it's four houses I've been kicked out of. Wander to one house and another, wonder if I'll get a call from my mother. Maybe this time, the cancer, it finally got her. The rest of my teams are spent locked up in another facility with flashy slogans, but words are smoke as soon as they're said. I'm locked in a closet instead of under a bed. They say nine hours ain't the end of the world, and the dude himself, he won't work here no more. But none of that makes anything all right. I'm stuck in another lockup filled with spite. By rough experience or genetic design, I split in half my good dude and my bad guy. I say my two ain't as bad as her nine. I hear that's how it is till I die. At last, I'm free to go. How does one make it? Just 18 years old? What do I even know? I find a steady income in construction. I'm the guy who likes to sling that mud. Bosses, they call me a natural. For one, something I'm proud of. But it's always a matter of time before I'm at wit's edge and stretching my last dime. Two kids and a girl ain't cheap. Not the mouths to feed, not the roofs to keep. 2007 is a way to say recession. How was anybody supposed to make it work then? If the college boys couldn't get any, where the f did the rest of us fit in? There's one house where I can return after each eviction. You know, the one that's big and embarrassing to mention, but after long roads and short funds, I'm there another time, a trip that breaks my body the way the others did my mind. Now I'm here in the shelter, at least for tonight. Tomorrow's roof is tonight's worry. Will I find any food? A warm spot I can keep? Can I trust the people around here enough to sleep? Always been around lots of people. Always been alone. All I want is a place to be. A place to call my home. From the eyes of a magistrate, an anonymous story as told to Christine Trotter and performed by Chandra Ford. I've been a magistrate for the Dayton Municipal Court System for 17 years, hearing criminal, traffic, evictions, and small claims civil cases. My job is to hear both sides and determine who is being truthful and who to rule in favor of, according to the laws. I can't rule based on my opinion. However, 
That doesn't mean I'm not human, that I don't see the pain and anguish of those who come into my courtroom. I learned long ago not to take my work home with me and to keep my face free of emotion when hearing a case. Sometimes, though, eviction cases can be tough to hear. Some tenants simply can't pay their rent or they get so far behind and can't catch up. You never really know what someone is going through and how they are surviving or trying to, and you're the one who has to tell them the law says they must move. It's not just a tenant's livelihood at stake, but a landlord's too. Therefore, I can't stress enough how important it is for any party in any eviction court case to know their rights, the laws, and how they apply to them. This housing crisis we're in, we've been in it a long, long time. Prior to the COVID pandemic, people experienced rent and mortgage rate heights, job loss, living paycheck to paycheck, life-altering situations happening, landlords doing illegal things, tenants taking advantage of, and so on. Add that to our current situation of trying to recover from the pandemic. Rent is higher than most mortgages out there. The housing inventory is low, which stems from the 2019 tornadoes that ravaged Dayton and other surrounding areas. We have been faced with more job loss and a weakened economy that many people never experienced before in their lives. All these factors add weight to a crisis that already existed, and now it just remains stagnant. Most cases I hear are simple. A tenant has not paid their rent, and they know it. And no matter what reason there may be, or how nice the tenant is, a landlord can't sustain their own livelihood by allowing a tenant to live rent-free. Most landlords go about handling evictions legally. They give a notice, they contact the court, they show up in court, and either they mediate with the tenant and work something out, or the tenant must vacate. It's never easy telling someone they have to leave their home. With each eviction, we are adding to an already exuberant number that exists because of other issues plaguing our communities. This might make the eviction process itself seem and feel inhumane, but something that many don't realize is that laws are in place to protect everyone. An extreme situation occurred in my courtroom that reminds me of the importance of such laws and my role in upholding them by holding those accountable who should be. It's not always the tenant at fault for something. There are landlords out there who might take shortcuts and they will use any means necessary to falsely protect themselves, like a situation I had where a tenant had to file an escrow. 
For a tenant to file an escrow, their rent must be current and it must be filed before an eviction is filed against them. Now, escrows usually involve a landlord who hasn't fixed something they are responsible for. The law requires that the tenant serve the landlord a 30-day notice in writing indicating that the tenant will be placing rent in escrow if they do not fix what is broken. If the repair involves an emergency, no written notice is required prior to the escrow, and the parties appear in court as soon as possible. Emergency examples are not having water or heat. In this case, a tenant filed an emergency escrow for not having hot water, and they had also tried to pay their rent, but the landlord refused it. The landlord claimed there was hot water when the tenant insisted there wasn't. My bailiff went out to the property to find there was hot water, but only because the landlord snuck in and turned it up. And then after my bailiff left, the landlord turned the hot water back down and he removed the front door to the tenant's apartment, which we learned about all of this from another emergency escrow filed by the tenant. I contacted the landlord and told him he needed to return to court for another emergency hearing. He admitted he took the door off. I told him he needed to put it back on or the tenant would be staying in a hotel that he, in fact, would pay for. He put the door back on, but the bottom hinge was broken, so the door still wasn't shutting all the way. And it still put the tenant and their belongings in a precarious situation. You can't expect a tenant to feel safe being exposed like that. In between all of this, the hot water was still being turned up and down. And the tenant kept contacting the court, asking us what should they do. I decided to go out there myself with the bailiff. And sure enough, the hot water was up. During that visit, we also discovered that the apartment building was ripe with roaches. And I mean, they were everywhere. It turned out that the tenant was in the process of moving, but they were current on their rent and still living in that apartment. They were elderly on their own, and even though they were moving, that apartment was still their home, and they were not being provided with the necessities the landlord was obligated to provide by law. The landlord's logic was that since the tenant was moving, they didn't need hot water or front door, apparently. I ruled in favor of the tenant, telling the landlord that he would not receive his rent. Of course, this upset the landlord to no end. He then turned around and gave the tenant a three-day eviction notice on the grounds of harboring an extra person in their apartment. He filed an objection to my ruling on not receiving his rent. And then he filed an eviction on the tenant for non-payment of rent. I explained to him that from the very beginning, his antics and shenanigans were nothing short of absolute and utter harassment toward his tenant. 
This was the most extreme case and the worst case of harassment towards a tenant that I have seen in my time on the bench. And from a landlord who is regular in the courtroom at that. However extreme a situation it was, though, it does demonstrate how the laws are in place to protect everyone, tenant and landlord. Should this have even happened in the first place? Is there a way we can prevent such situations? Is there a way we can see fewer evictions in our courtrooms? How can we ease the housing crisis instead of constantly adding to it? There's no one answer or even an easy answer to any of these questions, but I can offer some advice. Whether you're a landlord or a tenant facing an eviction situation, seek help. We have a legal aid in Montgomery County. Get your own lawyer, and if you can't afford one, try to get a consultation. There's also a self-help center in the courthouse with brochures full of information on an assortment of topics. The court also offers mediation, so sometimes cases don't even make it to the courtroom. Educate yourself on the laws and your rights. Use Google to find information. Be aware of the escrow process and how it works. If more tenants know how escrow works, they might avoid eviction by legally forcing landlords to fix what they need. If you create any documentation, make sure you word things correctly. Cases can easily be dismissed or you could easily end up owing lots of money to someone because an important document, like an eviction notice, was worded incorrectly. Educate high school and college students on housing options, budgeting, finances, and the laws regarding renting, leases, escrows, and such. I wish there was a better balance between powers. I wish there were fewer flaws in the systems we rely on to live. Yet we remain human, facing processes that we don't understand, processes that we don't always ask to be a part of. Our community members can best serve their needs and the needs of others by practicing self-perseverance and integrity. This includes both landlords and tenants. This is what will keep us human. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. BAI provides behavior-based interventions to all individuals with behavior programming needs to enhance their quality of life. Behavior Associates is the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at behavioraba.com and 765-282-8ABA. I want to welcome to the show four experts who research and or work on the front lines of eviction and housing insecurity. Dr. Kathy Rawl, Professor of Sociology at Sinclair Community College, Dr. Tim Thomas, Research Director at the Urban Displacement Project and Director of the Eviction Research Network at University of California, Berkeley, and Deborah Levy, Senior Attorney, and Destiny Brown, Community Organizer, both the advocates for basic legal equality. 
Kathy, Tim, Deborah, and Destiny, thank you for joining me on The Facing Project. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Kathy, you led the Facing Eviction and Housing Insecurity Project in Dayton. Why this topic? Why now? Well, now really started in 2018 when we learned through work by the eviction lab at Princeton that Dayton was the 26th highest uh, city in the nation for eviction filings. And I had a group of sociology students who were really concerned about it, and they took it on as a, a class project. And the research from that eventually led to a Date Daily News, uh, actually front page article, and the mayor of Dayton at the time, Nan Whaley, formed an eviction task force, and I became a member. Dayton was really fortunate to have this task force during the pandemic because a lot of cities didn't have a task force on eviction. And as we now know, you know, fortunately, due to some public interventions like, you know, rental rental assistance, we did see a decline in evictions for a time period. But we now know they're increasing again, especially for women and children. So I think for me as a sociologist, I wanted to help bring um, lived experiences to this story because I think most people are unaware that there's no federal or state right to counsel in civil court. And this means people facing eviction have no right to a lawyer and over 90% of them have no legal representation. And I thought, and I think others in the community also thought that hearing from those facing eviction and for anyone who reads the book, you also have an opportunity to hear from people who work in the legal system and the housing systems, really hoping that that might increase some awareness and I think as a sociologist, I, I study a lot of social problems where the solutions seem really complex and difficult. But, but for eviction, I feel it's a little different. There, there are clearly some public policies like rent control, source of income, pay to stay, mediation, and the legal right to counsel that can make a real difference in reducing eviction and the negative effects it has on families. So I think ultimately, we were really hoping to drum up some awareness and help educate the public uh, and hopes for social change. And I think this is one of those topics, eviction is one of those topics that we can do something about it. What's been your biggest takeaway? I know the book just came out in April and you had your event uh, in downtown Dayton. What's been your biggest takeaway so far? You know, I think we're living in a time period where you see people write a lot about declining empathy. I don't see that. I don't see that with my students, and I don't see that in the Dayton community. When the book came out, we had a record number of people show up for this event. I mean, we filled the library, and we had to turn. We, we sold out of, you know, the tickets were free, but we ran out of tickets. There was a huge concern in our community about this issue. So I think, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that people really do care, and people do understand justice, and they do understand that not having the right to legal representation in eviction court is a problem. And so for me, I think the biggest takeaway is that people really do care, they want to be involved, and we need to figure out how to make that happen for them. Mm -hmm. Tim, you led a team at the Urban Displacement Project to map gentrification and displacement in several U.S. cities, and you developed a model to predict locations where household vulnerability and eviction were likely to happen due to the pandemic. You're now advising the White House, HUD, and the Treasury Department on eviction trends. What is your data telling us? Well, uh, unfortunately, our data is telling us that things are not doing too well. We uh, created a forecast model last year that basically, based on uh, multiple states of data, that by August of 22, uh, we would be at historical average with evictions. 
we work with uh, groups like the Eviction Lab, but in particular, Legal Services Corporation, who I think has some of the best data in the country. We were looking at their data recently, and we were unfortunately correct in that forecast. Um, what's interesting, though, is that several states, the way that the local moratoria worked and rental assistance worked during the pandemic had a massive impact during that period in reducing evictions. Some states did not enact moratoria, and so they kind of maintained relatively high eviction rates, particularly like Indiana or Missouri. They were just below historical average, but we're talking about like five or 10 percentage points. But then states like Minnesota, they dropped down close to zero. But unfortunately, uh, as of now, they're one of the top evictors in the country, according to the data. They're sitting around 140 or 150% above historic or 50% above historical average, I should say. But uh, when we look at the data now in 2023, we have about uh, half the country uh, covered in data. And unfortunately, about two thirds of the states are above historical average right now. Uh, those are you know the highest evictors right now are Arkansas, Minnesota, which I mentioned, Texas, Arizona. And it's kind of unfortunate to see that because you know, states like Minnesota really surprised me. I know that they have a lot of really progressive policies, but to see them kind of go above average is really concerning. And I think that it speaks not only to the end of moratoria and the end of rental assistance, which I, sh which I should say is if anybody wants to know what policies work to mitigate eviction, we just saw a great example of that with moratoria and paying rental arrears. But right now, what really concerns me is not only uh, things getting back to normal, getting you know things getting back above normal, but there's also something that's going on that we're not talking about too much, which is sunsetting policies from the pandemic. For example, automatic enrollment in Medicaid and Medicare ended back in March. Uh, SNAP has been incredibly cut, SNAP food benefits. Uh, for example, families uh, that were getting $600 to $1,000 are now getting $200. Single individuals who were getting $200 per month are now getting $15 a month. And they're having to make a choice of you know, eating one meal a day. So it's these other kind of policies that are happening that is exacerbating the, the predicament that put people uh, on track for an eviction. Do you pay for your roof? Do you pay for your medical care? Do you pay for your food? You have to make that choice now. And with inflation, uh, the cost of food has gone up. The cost of living has gone up. And in addition to that, you know, the rental market has not really slowed down too much. It slowed down during the pandemic. But in 2013, uh, the country recovered from our last housing crisis. And since then, a lot of states have seen a 60% increase in rent. So cities like Seattle, for example, you need $100,000 to avoid rent burden. Um, and in low-income areas, particularly rural areas, you're seeing a lot of eviction happening. Uh, and it's happening across the board. So I hate to say, but we're, we're not out of the woods yet. To some degree, it's, it's like uh, the climate crisis. We've reached uh, the two degrees Celsius, which is kind of the threshold in the housing market right now. Mm. And I want to talk about representation. Deborah, in the stories heard earlier within the show, we met a man who had experienced several episodes with homelessness due to job losses 
and a judge who said that sometimes the landlords are right and sometimes they're wrong. The work of Advocates for Basic Legal Equality provides representation to those facing eviction. Talk about this process. What does it look like and how do you navigate expectations and tough conversations with your clients? The eviction process in Ohio is a very quick process. Uh, How the process works is a tenant is often served with a notice or notices. The landlord files uh, an eviction action with the court. And then if the tenant's evicted at the hearing, they're moved out pretty quickly. Uh, A number of years ago, the Las Vegas uh, Review Journal did a a survey of states and and how quickly uh, tenants are evicted. And unfortunately, Ohio was in the top 15, and and that's not where you want to be. So that means out of the entire country, if you live in Ohio, you're going to be moved out pretty quickly. So in Dayton, we do not have right to counsel. uh, And that term's been mentioned a couple different times. Right to counsel means that a tenant would have a right to have a lawyer represent them um, uh, in an eviction case, as we use the term right to counsel in evictions. Since that doesn't exist in Ohio, um, many tenants are left to either hire their own lawyer or apply for services in an organization like mine to see if they can get free representation. Because there is no right to counsel, we're limited on the number of tenants that we can represent. And that means that many tenants are left without representation. So the issue of navigating expectations can be very challenging. So I think it's very important um, when we represent tenants to be really clear about uh, the process and our role and their role in the process. Um, I believe in supporting our clients in the process, being honest and realistic about uh, their possible options and outcomes and empowering them to make informed decisions. I also believe it's important to make sure clients um, have a voice in the process and to give them um, information so that they're able to understand fully what's happening and are equipped to respond um, to those issues. One thing that's also been mentioned in addition to right to counsel are other tenant protection ordinances. And uh, we've been fortunate in the Dayton area to be able to pass some of those ordinances uh, since the pandemic hit. So we have passed a pay to stay, uh, which allows a tenant to stay in their home if they're able to pay all the rent and late fees that are due. We've also passed common sense ordinances like the requirement of a rent receipt, uh, capping late fees, Um, at 5% of the monthly rent. And then most recently, we passed a source of income protection ordinance that prohibits landlords from discriminating against a tenant based on their uh, source of income. And so often we see that in the context of a Section 8 housing choice voucher or some other sort of governmental income like social security um, or rental assistance. And then lastly, I just wanna say that rental assistance has been a lifeline for many tenants um, in Ohio. 
And it's encouraging to see places look for a way to make rental assistance a more permanent uh, piece of the landscape. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular success story you'd like to share? So I often like to share stories where we're not involved, because to me, that's really the success. So since pay to stay has passed, I have heard stories from the court and from tenants about them being able to stay in their home because they showed up at court with their money and they were able to win under pay to stay on their own. So to me, that's the success where the ordinances are in place and they're um, empowering tenants to be able to um, to stay where they're at. Mm-hmm. If you could clear up one misunderstanding the general population has about eviction or housing insecurity, what would that be for each of you? I think for me, there is an assumption that people who face homelessness or eviction are at fault um, or that their choices or their actions are what have caused their circumstances. And more often than not, it's it's just not true. There is it's also sometimes an assumption that people are evicted simply because they don't want to pay rent. Um, and that's also not generally what the issue is. I think that people find themselves in eviction crisis or homelessness for many reasons. And those reasons include situations that are often not thought about when there are assumptions or misunderstandings around why people are evicted. Um, and in my experience, I've seen how it can it can be things from losing a loved one and, and income is lost or having to make a very difficult de- decision on where you you will be housed because your living condition is deplorable or it's not safe for your children. And sometimes it's domestic violence or it can be just a landlord who decides the community is changing and I and I want to take advantage of the income I could have versus the tenant I currently have now. So they strategically evict tenants. And all of these things don't have, really have anything to do with not having a rent. It is a strategic effort um, made that is outside of a tenant's control. So in general, I think it's a misunderstanding that eviction and homelessness is a problem that impacts only particular people or particular communities versus the reality that any family, any person is really close to the experience depending on circumstances that can be out of your control. So, mm-hmm. GR, if I could kind of reiterate what Destiny kind of pointed out, I think it's incredibly uh important to know that just because it's a quote-unquote non-payment of rent it may not be because of falling behind on rent in uh the work we did in washington state there were uh tenants where the landlord refused to cash their rent check or you know uh their home would go into disrepair and the landlord's refusing to to fix it and you know people are withholding their rent so that they can protest, you know, these unlivable conditions uh, and they evict them. Or, you know, it happens a lot with elderly uh, folks, too. And they've been living there for 30 years and all of a sudden management changes. You know, it, landlords have found a lot of ways to figure out loopholes in trying to evict people. And it's it's very important to know that it's not just, a, you know, poor person can't pay rent kind of situation. But something else that uh, we, you know, what we find in our research that I think needs to get talked about a lot more is that there's a huge racial disparity in evictions. 
And that is directly tied to legacies of discrimination and segregation and uh, issues of gentrification as well. Uh, I feel like I almost don't need to study another state because the same statistics keep popping up. You know, things are happening in segregated, you know, it's happening in segregated areas. We call that churning evictions where they just kind of keep churning, you know, over and over. They keep replacing tenants and in gentrifying areas. They show uh, spikes in eviction and then sharp decreases. And so it's important to know that it's a very nuanced issue, but most importantly, the data that we have severely underrepresents the actual crisis because there are three data points, notices, filings, and the sheriff, uh, you know, lockout. And usually the filing is the data point that we use to talk about an eviction rate. And most people move sometime between notice and filing or even illegally prior to the notice. So this is an issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a shadow issue, and we're only scratching the surface of those that are vulnerable. Well, I just, I'll go ahead and echo. Um, Tim helped us do some research in Dayton, and we also saw the racial disparity in Dayton. And as a researcher, I'm really concerned about children. So we also know that there's something called a child effect where we're seeing families with children being the most vulnerable in this story. And I think Destiny said it really well. Um, one of the major reasons why women uh, experience eviction is domestic violence. And you rarely see that really talked about in you know journal articles or the news. So I think really understanding that eviction isn't just about failure to pay rent is a really important thing to know. Yeah, and I think the last thing that I would say is that evictions don't just affect the person who is evicted. So evictions are much broader than that, and the economic impacts of evictions are big, and they have a ripple effect. After an eviction, it's it's very complicated for tenants to find a new place. This often means that they're couch surfing, um, you know, staying with anyone that they can find, and then usually, in the worst case, they're either living on the streets or at the shelter. Um, and these situations mean that the tenants don't have a permanent address. Someone experiencing chronic homelessness on average costs a lot of money, you know, to society, not just the financial costs, but the other costs. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, costs for healthcare and other services um, it can be pretty significant. So I think it's important just to remember that we don't live in isolation and that when people are evicted, it affects us all. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kathy Rawl, professor of sociology at Sinclair Community College, Dr. Tim Thomas, research director at the Urban Displacement Project and director of the Eviction Research Network at University of California, Berkeley, and Deborah Levy, senior attorney and Destiny Brown, community organizer, both the advocates for basic legal equality. Thank you for joining me on The Facing Project. Thanks for having us today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Facing Eviction and Housing Insecurity, edited by Dr. Kathy Roll, is available everywhere books are sold. More about the Eviction Research Network can be found at evictionresearch.net. And more about advocates for basic legal equality can be found at ablelaw.org. Special thanks once again to Dr. Kathy Roll at Sinclair Community College for leading the Facing Eviction and Housing Insecurity Project in Dayton, Ohio. To 
to listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer and audio engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. I'm your host, J.R. Jameson. And until next time, I wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. The BAI team of professionals are dedicated to enhancing the lives of individuals with autism, with services tailored to meet the unique needs of each individual. BAI, the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at BehaviorABA.com and 765-282-8ABA.